0: Young disciples, there are pieces of paper over on the side table. Here's my challenge for you today. I want you, since we're talking about the story of the burning bush, to draw, color, create the most beautiful depiction of Moses and the burning bush that you possibly can. And I want, I want to see them after the gathering, okay? You share them with me. Well, church, today we're going to carry on in our sermon series in the book of Exodus that's titled, Wooed in the Wilderness. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. You can find that on page 46 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. A little bit about today's sermon to help you follow along. Today I want to preach about being called as we look at the calling of Moses. And unto that end, we will ask two questions that I think will guide us to a good understanding and application of this famous passage. First, Why was Moses not consumed? And second, why was Moses not discharged? With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. But I'll be reading only a few of those verses. Beginning in verse 1, church, hear the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, as he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Let's look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I am to come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I'm probably the worst sent one that you have ever met. When I did deliveries for Chick-fil-A back in the day, I was famous for getting things wrong such as the time that I delivered 10 sandwiches to the place that ordered 100 and 100 to the place that ordered 10. So somebody was really happy and somebody was really unhappy, and my bosses wanted to fire me, all right? But there is one incident in recent life that tops them all. This was not a delivery for Chick-fil-A, but it was when I was sent on behalf of an Antioch member who asked me to pick up something for her from a person in Indiana. This is one of those kind of Facebook marketplace deals where you buy something, a person sells something, you get together and have this weird sort of interaction where you don't really know each other, but you're trading something. Okay? I jump in my truck, I take my dog Franklin with me, and we drive and drive to this gas station out in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. Now I arrive early, and I get out of my truck Only to realize that I have locked myself out with my phone, wallet, and my dog still inside. Did I mention it's winter time? So the person pulls up, gives me the stuff, and then I say to them, Could you please help me get back in my truck somehow? Because I'm obviously locked out. And thankfully they're like, Okay, sure, I've got a tool I'll go get it, and they drive off. Now, they're gone for about 15 minutes, which felt like an eternity because I didn't know them. I didn't know if they were coming back. But thankfully, they did come back, and together we work on this old truck with one of those unlocking tools that you kind of jam down in between the window and the door, and it took about an hour of trying to no success. This old truck would not open. Finally, this person's about to give up when all of a sudden we hear that miraculous sound click, and the door opened up. Man, I, I throw it open. The person jumps back in their vehicle. Franklin is rejoicing. I turn to thank the person who's already so over all this that he's in his truck with the door closed. And as he rolls down his window, I hear behind me click. And I turn around to my horror and see that the door has closed and locked once again with my phone and wallet and poor Franklin still inside. So I turn back around and instead of saying thank you, I say with absolute mortification, It just locked again. Could you help me? Again? And so this person jumps out of their vehicle like an exasperated parent, gets the tool, we work on it again. Mercifully, this time, it opens in like 15 minutes. I immediately jumped in, like dive in, don't even say goodbye. I drive straight home, feeling like a complete doofus. And Franklin totally agreed. (laughs) Case in point, This week, here's a picture of him where I tried to take him to the vet. And he was like, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't doing this again. But here's the thing. As bad as I am, I ain't got nothing on Moses. In the section of Exodus that we're entering today, which really extends all the way to halfway through chapter 4, Moses doesn't just turn out to be a doofus twice, but five times. Five times God seeks to send him into his mission to deliver the people of Israel from slavery, and five times Moses shows himself to be like the worst-sent one you've ever met. Now, how could telling this embarrassing story possibly serve the people of Israel as generations of them read Exodus? And by the way, keep this in mind, it is Moses who is writing this story about himself. Here's how it served them. It brought out who their true deliverer was. And that he's faithful to his promises even in the darkest of times. The stage for this is set at the end of chapter 2. There we read, During those many days the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw there's that word again. You remember that theme that we've seen across chapters 1 through 3 now of God, of God seeing, of people seeing. This is the revelation of God coming forth in a vivid and unprecedented way. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Was it Moses who heard and saw and knew? No, for all we can tell, Moses had forgotten, had moved on. But God is not one to forget and move on. Not for his chosen one and not for his chosen people. Why is he like this? Well, in order to answer that, we must first answer this question in today's passage. Why was Moses not consumed? We read in verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So here we find Moses literally on the far side of the desert. He's seemingly as far away from the mission of God as he can possibly be. It's like Jonah on a ship headed to the end of the earth. And we know from the New Testament that 40 more years had passed since Moses fled from Egypt. 40 years of watching flocks and feeling like he's wasted his life. He is now 80 years old. But God is not one to forget and move on. So we read in verse 2, And the angel of the Lord, that is Yahweh, Appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, "I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? Revelation is happening before Moses and before us today. Of all the ways that the God of the universe could reveal Himself, why this? Anybody ever ask that? I think, okay, this is, seems random that God would do it this way. Well, there are a number of things that it specifically communicates. And while I talk about three of them, I want to help you visualize it by putting up Moses' AI-generated selfie. There you go. A little bit young looking for 80 years old, but maybe he's just been real healthy while he's out in the wilderness. First... Here's what this does. It draws us back to Genesis chapter 3. If you remember when the first man and woman, the original sent ones, decided to go their own way, where did God send them? Anybody remember? They had to leave Eden. He sent them out into the wilderness. And what did he place to guard the way to the tree of life so that they would not live in a fallen state forever? Anyone remember? Remember? Yeah, angels and a flaming sword. And so they go away from the fire and into the cursed thorns and thistles of a fallen world. In other words, into the desert bushes. But here, outside the lush garden of Eden, in the bushes of the far side of the desert, look what shows up. An angel and flame. What's that saying? It's saying that God takes the initiative to go out into the wilderness of our sin and reveal himself to us. The second thing that we learn from the bush is about the nature of God himself. All instances of fire have a clear beginning and end because fire is dependent on some form of fuel. When the wood runs out, the fire runs out. But in the case of this fire, it burns without consuming the bush, which means it's a fire that depends on nothing. Anybody here ever seen a dried-up Christmas tree burn up? I set one on fire one, one year. Flames went about 12 feet high. I think somebody about called the fire department on me. All right. But then what's left after that burns up is within just a few seconds, almost nothing but a charred trunk. And that's what should happen with a desert bush. Whoosh! But this dried up bush just keeps burning. That's why Moses is so amazed by it. And so what's that saying to us? It's saying that God depends on nothing. He has no beginning or end. He is the fuel on which all things depend. In other words... God is very being himself. He is existence. He is the source of all life. Which makes the third thing about the bush all the more amazing. Fire is never something that you merely observe unless you're really far away from it or it's one of those weird fake fireplace things that kind of does the fire glow and movement. Fire is something that you experience. If you come near it, you feel its heat. You see its light. You sense its power and danger. And this is why perhaps the better Moses selfie is the old school one that I prefer from Henry Blackaby. Anybody been around long enough to know what this is? I say this selfie is better because Moses in this moment is experiencing God. It's likely that Moses had only had a head knowledge of God up to this point in his life, but here he will have a life-changing encounter with the living God. And so what's that saying to us? It's saying that God isn't just satisfied with head knowledge, but he wants you to have a personal encounter with him. Which is why we read in verse 4 When the Lord Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now the sense that we get here is not that Moses has this conversation with God that's as casual as sitting beside a little campfire. No, no, it's more like, and here's another Indiana Jones reference for you. When the Ark of the Covenant is opened and everyone's face melts. Remember that scene, if you've seen the movie? So all over the world, people consider certain trees holy, and then they do things like decorate them and make sacrifices to them. But when the one true God shows up in a tree, take one step closer, and you'll be consumed. Why? Because he's holy, That's a word that means set apart, utterly different from us as humanity. Do you think that the hellish subterranean source of a volcanic eruption is powerful and dangerous? Anybody seen any documentaries coming out recently about people being around volcanic eruptions and being removed from the face of the earth? What about the sun? which could fit 1.3 million earths inside it. Is that powerful and dangerous? But we are talking about here the source of all sources, very being itself. And so the question is not, why was the bush not consumed? The question is, why was Moses not consumed? And the answer is the angel. Literally here, the messenger the sent one of Yahweh that's why you don't want to get this confused is Jesus actually an angel no he's not this word doesn't specifically mean angel as much as it literally means messenger sent on behalf of Yahweh did you notice that it is the angel of the Lord who appears in the bush but then it is God who is said to be speaking out of the bush they are clearly distinguished as two different characters in the scene but They act as one. How is that possible? Well, it's only possible if this is what we call a theophany, a pre incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. What we have here, y'all, is the doctrine of the Trinity on display. Where else are there different, unique persons and yet one divine essence at the same time? It's the Trinity. And yet here is where this high and heavenly doctrine matters to your everyday earthly life. The only way that we can have a personal encounter with Yahweh and survive is through a divine mediator, the sent one of Yahweh. That's why Moses was not consumed. He was able to be called by name into the presence of God, not because he took off his sandals and turned his face away, but because a loving earthly embodiment of Yahweh came to him. Listen to this translation from the NIV of Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not, what? Consumed as we should be. For his compassions never fail. That's more than just making you feel good in your devotional time in the morning. It's tangible. It's tangible because a loving earthly embodiment of Yahweh came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so here lies the answer to our first question this morning. Now let's now turn to our second question. It is this. Why was Moses not discharged? We continue reading in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now that is a large chunk of scripture and there's so much that we could say about it. There's so much that we could say about the character of a God who hears the cry of the hurting and answers them, who identifies with and enters into their suffering, who remembers and keeps his promises to them, who personally stands up for them and those who bully them, who aims not just to save them, but to then give them a home and an identity and a family. That's what all that talk about going to a land flowing with milk and honey is about. But here's what I want to focus on. The Lord, if you notice, is like, I have seen, I have heard, I have known, I have come down to deliver. And so we expect him to say, logically speaking, okay, I will be going now to do these things that I said I've come to do. But that's not what he says, is it? Not at all. Look, go back to verse 10. He says, come Moses, I will send you. You see, God never calls a person to come to him without also sending that person on mission with him. The instant that you become a saved one, you become a sent one, not just when you share the gospel for the first time, not just when you go on a mission trip for the first time. The instant that the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in you, the mission of God is yours also. Why? Because to come to God is to become one with him. Like just like when Franklin got into the truck with me, for better or worse, wherever I went and got into, he went and got into it. As Henry Blackaby says, you cannot stay where you are and also go with God. You can't stand with a head knowledge outside the truck and say like, God, I know you're going. But I'm going to stay here instead of going with you. No, no, you got to get in. But Moses is like Franklin this past week. He's like, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't going with you. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. When I first came to Louisville from being a sent one overseas, I had all the answers for the American church. In fact, my plan was to pastor a church somewhere in Kentucky, to start a church planting movement there, and then to head back overseas with Katie after one year. If you want to laugh at that, you should, because that is utterly ridiculous. But after six years of God breaking me apart, when Antioch first approached me about being the lead pastor, you know what my response was immediately? I'm not your guy. Go find someone else. Likewise, Moses has come a long way from Egypt where he was like, I'm the man. To the far side of the desert where he's like, yeah, I'm not your guy. Go find somebody else. And just as we talked about last week, it is often through suffering and failure that God breaks us of the pride of self-dependence. But as one scholar puts it, self-distrust is good but only if it leads to trust in God. Otherwise, it ends up as spiritual paralysis and inability and unwillingness to undertake any course of action. Y'all, there are times where all of us need someone, and I thank God for those people in my own life who have been willing to do this. There are times where we need someone in the context of a relationship of trust to literally or figuratively lift our faces and say something like, I love you and I'm sticking with you in the pain. But you need to know that right now you are fixated on yourself and you are wallowing in your struggles. My friend, you were made for more than this. And that is what the angel of the Lord does for Moses here. He says the most important words of being called by God. What are they? But I, God, will be with you. What else do you need? Come to the end of yourself and realize that I will be with you. That is the perfect recipe to be useful in God's hands. And this is how the Trinitarian God works. He says, like you and I are different, but we will become one in this relationship and mission. You see, as Exodus goes on, it's going to be hard at times to distinguish between the roles of God and the role of Moses. Yes, God is the redeemer, but Moses is the means by which God will redeem. And what Moses is seeing here is that his qualification for such a calling is that he's not qualified. That's what makes him ready. It is precisely when we feel useless that we are finally useful to God. It's when you've acted out in front of your family. I'm talking to adults and children here. It's when you've acted out in front of your family that you can go back and say, forgive me, this is how much I need the gospel to you. That's powerful. It's when your plans for yourself have fallen apart that you can go to God and say, "Okay, I, what do you want from my life?" It's when you've failed to be a faithful witness that you can go back to that person and say, "I was afraid to say something to you, and it was wrong of me, but I'd still like to share it with you." It's powerful And this is the invitation for Moses. But instead we read this in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they inevitably ask, Well, what is his name? What am I going to tell them? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am, has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So if Moses' first objection is, I'm not your guy, then his second objection is basically, No one is going to think I'm your guy. Now, it's not likely here that the people of Israel don't know the name of God. That's not why that Moses thinks they will ask that question. But it's more so that they probably don't know God's nature. And that is the wider reality that a name represents, not just a person's name, but their entire character. And so this generation of Egyptians have not experienced Joseph's saving power. And in the same way, this generation of the Israelites have not experienced God's saving power. There needs to be new revelation here, and as often the case in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, when there's new revelation, it often comes with God giving himself a new name or being called by a new name. And so Moses basically feels like that he's going to have to show up to the people of Israel with something impressive and innovative. God, how can you call me? How am I going to have anything to offer unless I'm special? Unless I've got something special and new and impressive to offer people? This is never going to work. We think in these ways, but here's what God gives him instead. He says, I am who I am, which could also be translated, I will be who I will be. The shortened version that follows is simply, I am. And that is actually the name itself, I am. And in the Hebrew, this is simply, eh, yeah. From which we get the English translation, Yahweh. Which you see in your Bibles often as all caps, Lord or God. When you see that in your Bibles, you know that it is Yahweh that is being written here. Now, can you imagine asking someone, What's your name? And they say, I am. And then you follow up and you say, well, tell me about you. And they say, I am who I am. (laughs) And and that's it. A weird conversation. So like, what, what what exactly is going on here? Well, Jewish scholars have been trying to answer that question for over three millennia. So like, let me cover it in 30 seconds for you, okay? Here we go. The simplest way that I know how to put it takes us back to the burning bush. There we saw that fire without fuel points to a God who is very being itself. So to say, I am gets at that very same truth again, that Yahweh is very being itself, no beginning or end, unchanging, unrestrained, and unquestionable. I am who I am. And if that's true, then it brings us back to this. If Moses questioned the unquestionable one, how was he not discharged? Now, by that word, discharged, I mean like relieved from service or rejected as a sent one. Well, the answer is in the name itself. In what context is the revelation of this name going to be forever bound up with? What is the book of Exodus about, y'all? It's about an exodus from slavery. It is about salvation. And so... The pinnacle of the Old Testament is going to be bound up forever with this name. That means that Yahweh, from beginning to end, is unchangeably, unrestrainedly, unquestionably gracious. He says, This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. You see, from that point on, every time an Israelite heard the name Yahweh, they were to be reminded of the nature of a God who himself would come and provide for them salvation. And as one scholar puts it, the name Yahweh ultimately meant to Jews, what another name would come to mean to Christians? A shorthand for all God's dealings of grace. What is that other name? Jesus. Dear friend, do you want to know the name of the one who is very being itself? Do you want to know what he is forever like? Look to Jesus Christ. You see, God is not one to forget and move on. He remembered his plan, not simply to redeem one nation, but to redeem people from all nations. So he took the initiative to go out into the wilderness of our sin and reveal himself. To us, y'all, he wasn't satisfied with us having a head knowledge about him. He wanted a personal encounter with him. And yet how did he do that without consuming us? Through the sent one of Yahweh, a divine mediator, a loving earthly embodiment of himself, his own son, Jesus Christ. This sent one, he would hear people's cries and answer them. He would identify and enter into their sufferings. He would personally stand up to those who bully them. He would teach them about the new home and identity and family that he was giving them. This sent one, y'all, like, not unlike Moses, would never deny God's calling. He would never question God's mission. And yet, rather than receiving grace like Moses, he was consumed by the fiery wrath of God as he was hanged on a cross. And he was seemingly discharged from the service of God as he was buried in a tomb. And yet he rose from the dead. Why? How? Because God was with him. And more than that, because he was God himself. And he tells us this very thing in John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham ever was, ego, I, me, the Greek form of the Hebrew phrase, eh, yeah, I am. And that means that Jesus Christ is very being itself, unchangeable, unrestrainable, unquestionable, even by death. And so what does that matter to you? Because this is where you can experience for yourself being called. Called to salvation, to turn away from sin's like thinking you're too bad for God or thinking you're too good for God or thinking that your head knowledge is all of God that you need and instead to trust that your exodus out of slavery from sin is possible in only one way, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And it also matters, church, because this is where you can experience being called not only to salvation, but to mission. To come to God is to become one with him. To be saved is also to be sent at the same time. And so where can I land this in an application that is helpful to your everyday life? Here it is. What the, trini- what the Trinitarian God wants Two things. First, for you to be a burning bush that is not consumed. Filled with the fire of his spirit, gladly obedient to his will, going to ordinary desert places where there are broken people and displaying God to them with your words and actions, him as the redeemer and you as the means. Do you understand the magnitude of what has had to happen so that the living God, very being itself, the source of volcanoes and suns could come and live in you in an everyday ordinary sort of way and you not be absolutely burst and consumed entirely? This means communing with God so closely that you're able to keep going your whole life long without burning you're not just doing stuff for him. To be a burning bush without being consumed means you're doing stuff with him. And then secondly, what the Trinitarian God wants, I think, is that for you to be a sent one who is not discharged. Where your questions don't keep you from your purpose. Where you do things that bring you to the end of yourself. I have people Who, as my preaching has improved over the years, will come to me and say, Man, that was so great. How did you do that? I say, Man, if you could only see what Sunday to Sunday looks like in the preparation of a sermon, you would see that over and over, I literally come to the end of myself where I say, I have no idea what to say next, Lord. Lord, I have no idea what people need to hear from this passage. Lord, I have no clue what this means. And that is when he shows up and gives me words to say for you because it's God coming to redeem and through me on the means. And this is what he wants for you, that you would do things that stretch you so far that you say, I can't do this, Lord. I can't handle this child any further in a godly way if you don't come to help me. I can't be a faithful witness in my workplace if you don't come to help me. I can't step out into this role to serve unless you show up and help me. That's a good place to be. Listen, when I came back from overseas, I was a doofus. And when I worked for Chick-fil-A, I was a doofus. And like when I took Franklin to Indiana, I was a doofus. But I've learned that my qualification is actually my lack of qualification. And so I keep going. So let me say to you today, for whoever needs to hear it besides me, Like stop fixating on yourself and wallowing in your struggles and shortcomings and weaknesses and incompetencies. God says, I love you and I'm sticking with you in your pain, but you are still sent and I will be with you. And that's all that matters. And here's the table where he himself every week Comes, and you know what he does? He lifts your face up. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Church today, here's what we are announcing, and I invite you to announce it with me. Because of the Lord's great love in Jesus Christ, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Amen. Our invitation for you, if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, is to come forward to the Lord's table, to break bread and to dip it into the juice, remembering what Christ has done for you in his deep love for you, and what he promises to do upon his return in his great love for you. If you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, instead of taking this, which is simply a sign pointing to the reality, we would invite you to take the real deal which is Jesus Christ himself. And you can receive him by grace through faith. Turn away from trying to be good enough on your own and instead trust that he was so good on your behalf and is glad to share all of his riches with you to make you belong to God forever, that you might be a burning bush, that you might be a sent one. There'll be pastors and prayer warriors in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow our hearts before you after the receiving of your word. And we thank you so much that through the fire of the proclamation of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as weak words as they are to describe the true beauty of who you are, that you are pleased to use that proclamation and to call people by name to come and be saved by you alone and not only to come and to be saved but also to come and be sent lord that our lives may have purpose that we would have more than fire insurance that we won't go to hell when we die but that we would have a lifetime where every part of our lives becomes meaningful because it is in your hands and because you have purpose for us, sent into our homes, sent into our neighborhoods, sent into our workplaces, sent into classrooms, sent overseas, even. Lord, as we respond to you in this moment, I pray that you would help us to come with broken hearts, but hearts that are not broken as an end in themselves, but are also built back up. And I pray that as people come and tear bread and dip it into the juice that you would lift up their faces whether literally or figuratively that they would look into the eyes of those who speak these words the body of Christ broken for you the blood of Christ shed for you and that they would sense in a small way your presence as if you yourself were here lifting our faces and saying I love you I'm not going anywhere even in your brokenness Father, have your way in this moment. We do love you. In Jesus' name, amen.